Hey, pluckies, and welcome to this week's episode of the Plucking Up podcast. Our guest this week was so interesting and had such a unique perspective and lived experience that I am really excited to share with you all. One of the things that I loved about our conversation, if you've been a friend of the show, you know that one of the first things that I love to ask my guests, and not just my guests, but I also ask like strangers that I meet on like a city bus, I love to talk about our childhood. I love to talk about our stories as far back as people are willing to go and to understand how our childhood experiences, our, our families of origin, the cultures that we grew up really did shape us or in some ways kind of just like these intrinsic parts of who we are that we could see from a young age and then these other parts of us that kind of start to emerge later in life that sometimes we can tie back to childhood or sometimes we can't. Rithu, our guest on the show this week, actually holds the belief that who we are as adults is a manifestation of who we are as children and that it's really powerful to kind of see and to understand our history, to inform our present, and to help us think about our future. Rithu Basin is a very accomplished leadership coach. She's an author. She is a speaker. We talk a lot about childhood. She is really honest and open about some of the really hard experiences. She faced some racism as a South Asian child of immigrants coming to the United States. She shares about the mental health hurdles that she overcame. She also talks about how she, through her journey, learned to embrace her true self and how her cultural identity really informed that and how part of her life's work is really helping other people to do the same. Rithu is a beautiful person. I think this was a beautiful episode, and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Without further ado, my conversation with Rithu. So we're going to start out by, will you give us just like the elevator pitch of at this moment in time? where we're catching you, what does your life look like? How do you spend your time? How do you identify yourself on a vocational level? Just give us like the 30 second overview. I'm meeting you in an elevator. Who are you? Oh, well, at this very, very moment, uh, it is it, it is a time in my life that is, there's so much going on because my new book is coming out called We've Got This and I am anticipating the launch of that. And I'm so excited about its messages. And so I'm I'm knee deep in book launch stuff. But I'm also so grateful because this journey of writing my book has unearthed for me all kinds of reminders about who I really am as a person. Mm. Like I'm thinking about how I'm so grateful to be the daughter of Indian immigrant parents. I am so grateful that in writing my book, I was reminded about my connection to every being on this planet, to the earth, to goodness, kindness. I am reminded about the importance of rest because I'm exhausted after three years mm-hmm. of the pandemic mm-hmm. and writing a book. And I'm someone who just deeply wants the world to be a better place for not only myself, so I can have a better life, but for the generations to come. And so I am a person who cares about having a beautiful, inclusive, empowered world for all of us. Hmm, I love that. I love that 
the way that you just described that feels like the product, what you're doing, you're an author. But there's like almost you talked about being an author more of like this is the specific tool that I'm using at this moment in time to bring forth this message versus your identity being like I am a person who writes books. That is what I do. It it felt like there was a, almost like a disconnect but not in a way that felt like – because I think sometimes people are like, you know, I'm a published author, but not like I just did it one time or like not in a way that feels like diminishing, but in a way that feels like this is a tool that I am using at this moment in time to accomplish my goal, which is bigger than that tool itself. Does that feel accurate? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because my new book, We've Got This, is about my journey with learning how to belong and also what I've learned based on the research and and all my work in this space about how do we stand in our power and claim who we really are. But I can tell you for years and years and years, if you had someone had asked me, if you had asked me like say 20 years ago, Ritu, who are you? I probably would have rhymed off titles. Hmm. Like at the time mm-hmm. I was a lawyer because I once was, or I'm an entrepreneur or I'm an activist or whatever. I would have used labels to describe who I am. And I and I think those labels are still important. Like I, it's interesting because when people say, well, Ruthie, you're an author. I'm like, yeah, I'm an author, but actually really I'm a public speaker. Speaker, I'm like a professional speaker. That's what I really am. But, but those are just labels. They don't really accurately capture the essence of who I am and what I care about in this world. And me running a global business or me being an author or me being a trained yoga teacher, like all of this is true, but they're not the essence of who I actually mm. am and what I actually deeply care about. They're manifestations, mm-hmm. but they're not mm-hmm. who I am. Yeah. Which I love because to me that inherently feels like it instills a sense of a little bit of freedom and flexibility for those things to change and to grow and to evolve and for maybe one that you're letting go of for a season and another one that you're kind of picking up because again and doing that without the like crisis of identity because it's not your identity it's a tool it's like okay I am a person who believes this about what the world could be and in this season I'm using book writing to do that but primarily really what I'm doing is using this tool of communication, live communication and speaking in front of people. But I don't know. There's just like a freedom and flexibility to that that I feel like if and when one of those things changes or goes away, that kind of like, oh, my gosh, who am I moment, it may still happen to a smaller degree. But I have to believe that this sort of identity would help usher us into these inevitable seasons and changes of life with a lot more peace and curiosity and freedom than when we ascribe to this, like, this is who I am. This is what I do in the world. And if for whatever reason that's taken away or it's no longer working anymore, uh, that can be really, really painful and challenging. And and it calls a lot. We end up putting a lot of energy in and towards that question as opposed to solving the problem in the world that we think we're called to solve. Yes. All of that. I'm with you. 100%. (laughs) Co-signing that. Co-signing that. (laughs) Co-signing. Co-signing. Okay. So let's take a moment. And go back as far as you're willing to take us into your story. So I want to, I want, I mean, childhood. Tell us about how you grew up, what your lived experience was. And maybe if you can touch on, are there any threads of what you ended up becoming and building and being in the world that you were able to see in hindsight in who you were as a child? Or is your story one that's like a little bit more surprising of like, well, didn't really see that coming. But will you just take us back to to as far as you're willing to go? 
Oh, absolutely. And it, it's interesting that you you have started off by taking me back to my childhood because in We've Got This, I literally start the book by talking about how it's critical that we understand our childhood stories okay, because they directly shape who we become as adults. Like, like there's like no coincidences in the universe. It's actually like we're manifestations of what happened to us as children. Mm. Certainly that, is, that has been my story. So I mentioned a little bit ago that I am the child of immigrants. So my parents came to Canada, which is where I live. I'm Canadian. You're going to hear the out and about Canadian mm -hmm. in me. Oh, I already have. It's come <laughs> out. It's, it's already come out and about. <laughs> Loud and clear. Okay. Yeah, it's there. I love it. Out and about in Canada. And so they immigrated like now over 50 years ago. And so they came in the early 70s and they left a, a, a quite an affluent life, both of them back home to come to Canada, Canada to build a better life for their children. And we had a quintessential story as it relates to a household being run by immigrants in that my parents worked really hard to move up the social ranks. We grew up very working class initially. I had a front row seat to watching my parents experience all kinds of adversity, mm. including racism. And, mm. the, and in particular, I should mention, so... We're Punjabi by culture and we're Sikh by faith. And when I say Sikh by faith, my faith is called Sikhism or Sikhi. I'm a Sikh. It often is pronounced as Sikh and Sikhism. That is the, that is incorrect. The pronunciation, oh. we're decolonizing language. It's actually Sikh and Sikhism or Sikhi. And so my father was a turban, has a beard, the full deal. And so I watched my parents experience all kinds of oppression and then on top of that, I had my own experiences with bullying and in particular racist bullying. And so sadly, I am the survivor of years of relentless traumatizing racism and bullying. And I didn't realize back then when it was happening, the extent to which it would have an impact on me as an adult, mm. but it literally changed my entire life hmm. and in a, in, a, in a really bad and ugly way hmm. but also the fact that I have now chosen a life where I am writing about speaking globally about the importance of claiming our authenticity being who we are standing in our power in in unlocking belonging for ourselves and for others creating a more equitable society for all directly ties back to my experiences as a child. Mm -hmm. But essentially what happened to me because of these horrible experiences at school, and then also struggling with cultural confusion at home, is that from a young age, I internalized messaging that I am broken, that there's something mm -hmm. wrong with me, that I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, and that I should conform, I should change who I am push down my smart girlness, push down my working class roots, act fancier, push down my brownness in favor of mm. whiteness to get ahead. And so I, cho I, I knew while all of this was happening and I was racked with insecurities inside and shame and fear and sadness, I put on what I call my positivity perfection armor achievement armor, my PPA armor. And I 
grew up through my teens and into my 20s acting like everything is great and I'm so happy and I, if I'm just sunshiny, then everyone will just assume that my life is so great and I feel amazing all the time. And if I can just be perfect in everything I do. So I speak perfectly and I dress perfectly and I have all the perfect education and degrees and I just do everything perfect at work. People will judge me less. And then in addition, if I'm constantly achieving and I'm winning awards and I'm moving up the corporate ladder and growing my education, the achievement will make me excellent. And then you can't judge me. Then you'll, mm -hmm. you're going to have to like me. Mm -hmm. so, so that's what I did all as a way to mask my pain and my hurt. And I didn't realize until I was in my 30s that, wow, I had already become a lawyer by the, this point. I was working in the towers. Externally, I looked really successful and would have seemed to have been doing well because I dressed the part and I sounded the part and I was acting the part. But if you'd asked me in my early 30s, are you happy? I would have said to you, happy. Like, I don't even know who the F I am anymore. Mm. I, yeah, I have all the external markers of success, but I feel spiritually lost and vacant. Mm. And I just, I was beside myself. And there were a few things that happened that really, for me, cracked open the moment of, mm. of, for change. But that led me to be like, I'm not, this is not how the rest of my life is going to go down. Okay, which I really want to, I want to dive into those. Before we do that, can you t share with us, how did your parents engage with you during that season when you were still under their roof, when you were a child, experiencing this intense and traumatic bullying and othering? How did your parents engage that? Like, what was their, how did they walk with you in that or not? Yeah, just kind of talk to us, like, what was their perspective on how you should exist and understand this and how it impacted you? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point that you raise. And so, you know, it's funny. When I was in my 20s, I promised that I would never be one of those people who would, like, when I when I was in my 40s, that I would go back and be like, back in those days, let me tell you. But right. now, this is exactly what I am doing, okay? I know. We're well, doing it. I mean, it, here it is. So, So I'm in my late 40s now. And I was, I, the, the extent, like the, the depth of the bullying for me was in the late eighties, early nineties. And like the world was really different back then. We weren't talking mm -hmm. about bullying in schools, like they, mm -hmm. like mental health and bullying. It mm -hmm. was like racism. It talking about this in schools, like it just was not happening or certainly mm -hmm. not happening in the homogeneous neighborhood I was growing up in. Mm -hmm. And so I... I was living a private hell. And mm -hmm. what do I mean by that? I didn't tell my parents what was happening okay. at school. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't tell them for a few reasons. Let's remember that I had started to put on my PPA mm -hmm. armor. And I thought like if I put the armor of everything's okay and everything's great and I'll be more lovable, likable at school, at home, all of that. But also my parents were new immigrants. They, they were with three kids and they had their own battles going on. And right. so... And, and we weren't encouraged back then to talk about these things. And so I didn't tell them really. Now, what's fascinating to me now is that the teachers would have seen it. That of course right. they saw it and no one interrupted it. Like, like, and that's the piece that like for me is heartbreaking. And I'm so grateful as well that there have been dramatic shifts in the way in which we educate and we manage classrooms that this type of behavior would not be tolerated. And I remember, how about this? And I was in grade nine 
and I mustered up the courage. Uh, and it, by, by grade nine, it had been happening. I was in year six, seven, eight. I was in my fourth year of relentless bullying. Oh. And, and now I'm into high school because I finished the elementary years. I was now into high school. I'm in year four of the bullying. And I mustered up the courage to, to approach my English teacher to say, can I speak to you uh, about what's happening to me in the classroom? And this would have been 19, well, 1989. It was 1989. And I remember meeting with him and saying to him, at the table I'm sitting at, here's what the girls are doing, including drawing pictures of me as Ruthie the Curry Queen in front of my Curry Queen mm -hmm. hut. And here's all the things they're saying to me. And here's how they're treating me. And he told me, this is a personal problem or dispute that you have to learn to manage. Wow. And that's how the situation was dealt with. He did not elevate it. He did not speak to them. He did not speak to the principal. He did not raise this with my parents. It stopped there. And so that is so painful there. That, that's like another level of pain, I think, because when kids are being cruel, it's it doesn't take away the fact that it's really painful. But I do think that even as kids, you understand they're kids and like kids are they don't know they don't you know, like they're still learning and developing when an adult, whether by omission or actively perpetuates that behavior condones it in some way that's like another level of pain because I think it's like it's kind of giving a stamp of approval to that type of behavior of like oh this isn't just something some mean insecure underdeveloped kids are doing this is a way of being that's acceptable in the world I think not to get <laughs> overtly political but we'll go there I, I feel like that is kind of what happened in our country over the last several years, at least for me, I remember going like, okay, there are really painful derogatory things to hear people say. But like when I'm at a, I don't know, I don't know, when I'm at a gas station and I get verbally and grossly accosted by some gross man, it's like, it's, that's not that that's okay. But also I'm like, I don't know that I expect anything else. You know, like he's not necessarily yeah. in a position of power. Like, and so it's one thing, still painful, still not okay. But then when you see that exact same behavior legitimized by other people, that you're like, wait, we're all adults here and we're saying that's okay. We're putting a stamp of approval on this behavior that's no longer like the kind of, you know, like nut job, gross guy at the gas station. It's like people in the highest places of power that other people are going, yeah, 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 we're okay with that there's another level of pain that you're going like, does no, you know, for me, even in this context, speaking specifically as a woman going like, oh, wait, you're saying it's okay that people talk about me like that. You're saying it's okay for me to be grabbed without my consent. You're voting. You're literally voting for that. That's different because now I don't feel like it's the gross guy at the gas station who's after me and disrespecting me. It's like, I kind of feel like half the population is like, yeah, 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 we're, we're like, we're okay with that. And so it's a level of – it's like this meta-cultural stamp of approval of your unworthiness and the fact that you aren't worth being protected or being respected. And so I feel like that's kind of what you experience on a micro level with that teacher going like, I don't – this is your problem to solve. I'm not stepping in as a moral authority and saying this isn't going to happen in my classroom. Yeah, that's certainly how it felt. Absolutely. 
So, okay, so you had that moment with the teacher that was like stamp of approval of this behavior. You're not worth protecting. You're not worth respecting. And that carried with you deeply throughout. It sounds like your 20s, your 30s. You did your you did your armor of protection of if I'm just good enough and perfect enough and pretty enough and successful enough, they the haters can't hate. Tell us about the moment where that the armor, where did the, the first chink in the armor start to appear? Well, I, I knew from a young age that how I was being treated and the experiences I was having weren't right, weren't fair. I knew what was happening was wrong. And and the other thing is that I knew that I was hurting inside. And I knew this because my body and my mind were signaling to me I something, this is not good. This, this, this does not feel right. It doesn't feel good. And so I had already from a young age started to seek healing as, as a way to live a better life. Mm. And so back in the nineties, I watched a lot of Oprah. I had started to read a lot of self-help books that uh, the experts that were on her show. When I entered into university, I had my armor on but growingly knowing that like I'm hurting, things are not okay. And so when I was in university, I, I actually two things happened to me that were really interesting that then unlocked or became this cascading effect of heat for the healing that I focused on. And number one, I started to study systems that are invented and developed mm. in society that cause a lot of us mm -hmm. to internalize this negative messaging and mm -hmm. then also cause others to feel superiority, supremacy about who they are, mm -hmm. and then feel the right to dominate. Mm -hmm. And so what I started to realize is, wow, I'm part of a system that's actually been designed to hate on me as a woman, as a woman of color. And so that was really eye-opening for me. Mm -hmm. And then secondly... I started therapy at a very young age. So I was 20 wow, years old. And again, this is like 1990, must've been like 1996, I think. Which like, that was not a time where that therapy was nearly as widely received, no. talked about, accessible. And did you seek that out on your own? I Were did. you like, I need help? I did. <gasps> I was you. on. I, was... I feel like that's kind of a, a like a trailblazing yeah. rebellious thing for a 20 year old in the 90s to be like, I need, yeah. I need help through this form. Well, and you know, back then I'm thinking about my university campus, like there were posters, like, are you struggling? Mm. Are you sad? Like whatever. And I remember mm. seeing one. It was like, come to the student, uh, student center and you can sign up for counseling. And I was wow. like, I'm going to do that. I, t I told, so, but here's what's fascinating. I told one friend mm. um, who's still one of my closest friends ever. I said, I'm going to go see a counselor. And she's like, that's a great idea. And here's the fascinating thing, Liz. I vividly recall doing this. I would come into the student campus building, like the student center building on campus. And there was the door for the counselor's office, the therapist. And I would look around and wait till I could ensure that no one sure. I knew was in sight. And then I would like beeline run into the office so no one would see me because of all the social stigma. Totally. Now, almost yeah. 30 years ago, around counseling and therapy and all that. But here's the thing. Doing that therapy work, learning about the systems of oppression, it was so important for me because what ultimately ended up happening is as I started to dig deeper and deeper into 
my healing work, I help, I started to realize, wow, all of this conforming that I'm doing, all of this armoring up that I'm doing, mm -hmm. it's just masking my hurt and pain. And that mm -hmm. if I really want to live my best life and have the best impact on this world, then I am going to need to learn to stand in my power and speak my mm -hmm. truth and, and really double, triple down mm -hmm. on anchoring and centering to my value mm -hmm. and my core about my purpose and meaning in life. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really for me, what ultimately led me to a place now where it's like, I've designed this full business and a life around my purpose and my meaning mm -hmm. and living my truth and being who I am and claiming belonging. And I think the reason why I'm like, as you can see, so candid and so open and sharing it and, and my, and I write about it, my new book, for example, is because I had hoped that one day I would feel free to be who I am, mm. that I could exhale. I knew that I could do it. I knew that the potential was there, but it was just felt so out of grasp and I had no idea how to really make it happen. And here I am on the other side where I still struggle, like those feelings of being unworthy, feeling like I'm not lovable, feeling like, is anyone going to like me and be my friend? They do come up. Like they're still with me because a lot of this sure. is like, it's trauma. It's like, it's going to be yeah. a lifelong journey to undo this. But I'm like, I'm amazing. And I'm standing in my power <laughs> and watch out world. And, oh, you don't like me? Well, that's on you. I don't care because I'm actually really amazing. And I love myself more and more and more every day. So I'm like, I, I, I'm the reason I'm so vocal about this is because we can find our way on this path. Mm. We really can. You know, you talk about something that's really, I love how you so seamlessly went from, I started studying the systems to how that impacted you personally, because I think that's a really important, I think once we understand that a system is designed to work against us, there is a level, the the not that it doesn't still impact us personally, but on a, at least on an intellectual level, there's almost like a release of going, oh, this isn't about me as an individual person, not being smart enough, not being good enough, not being lovable enough, not being competent enough. There's like this understanding that there's this larger system at play that's designed against you that I think can help release us from some of those like it must just be me. And it also, I think, puts some of the responsibility where the responsibility, you know, belongs. Like I've I've heard that there's a shift instead of talking about slaves, talking about people who were enslaved, right? Where it's like, okay, well, when we talk about the slaves, there is kind of this one sense of identity of like this is who they were. They were slaves. Two, it very conveniently leaves out any notion of how slaves became slaves. And all of a sudden when we say people, one, that's their identity, they're humans, humans that were enslaved, my mental process when I hear that like verb, this thing that was done to this people group, I just mentally go to, oh, there was someone who did that to them. And now all of a sudden this whole thing, the question that I'm asking is like, well, who was responsible for that, right? Ultimately, we know exactly who was responsible for that. But it kind of calls into question folks who need to be held accountable for the systems that were built in a way that I think relieves some of the pressure off of the oppressed of going, 
I know I'm just broken. I'm just not good enough. This is about me specifically as an individual who just can't hack it to this is an entire system that is negatively impacting me, but it actually isn't really doesn't have that much to, to do with me as a unique person in the world that can kind of like free us up. Yeah. it's it, So every system in society is entrenched with the creation of inequities tied back to multiple layers of identity. And in particular, like, so I'm just going to be direct in name that we live in a global society where people who are cisgender, hetero, white, educated, affluent men benefit from the creation of these systems and the historical legacies of these systems because these systems were created literally thousands of years ago and then reinforced hundreds of years ago. Like you mentioned the experience of enslavement. I'm thinking I've been talking uh, when I was referring to my parents immigrating, like my parents were were literally bo born into the decolonization of India. Like my, mm -hmm. my mom was a displaced person mm. because her family had to exile from now Pakistan mm. to now India, mm. right in the midst of partition or the decolonization of India, which was directly tied to white people in Britain controlling based on racist structures rooted in white supremacy. And so, so these systems are omnipresent. They're everywhere. And language, as you referred to in, in naming people who experienced enslavement, for example, or people who were enslaved, language, every word that we utter can either be used to reinforce these systems mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or interrupt these systems. Mm -hmm. And so having mindfulness around the fact that, wow, this system is always at play. Like when people say, for example, I'm not sexist or I'm not racist, or they say, I've never experienced racism or I've never experienced sexism, for example. It's the, well, there's the overt direct acts that we clock because they're happening right in front of us. But, and then there's the systems that are around us that we live in. And every mm -hmm. system that we live in is sexist and it is racist because of the, the global manifestation of it and the historical legacy, current realities. And so these systems are always at play. I think for me, one of the most powerful shifts that we have started to see after the murder of George Floyd back in May of 2020 is that there's way more vocalization about how this is a collective experience mm -hmm. and that these aren't just individual experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we focus more on, wow, there is like a full pattern mm -hmm. out there in workplaces or in society around who gets to get ahead and who doesn't. And it's a collective experience. It, it allows us, enables us to not just feel like, wow, I'm not the only one and I'm the one living an effed up life or, or, or mm -hmm. more importantly, I'm the problem. Mm -hmm. It helps mm -hmm. us to understand that there's a systemic situation at play but also calls attention to how we need to do a better job of dismantling these systems. Because one last thing I'll say, let's go back to childhood bullying, which for me, like, again, was really pronounced. The, if we're going to truly interrupt systems that in, touch on bullying, childhood bullying, like I often think about those kids at school who were saying those mean things to me, they weren't born with those thoughts. Mm -hmm. They weren't born with that language. 
they weren't born with the inherent desire to hurt me. Mm-hmm. They were taught that. And they were taught that by elders who had also been conditioned to speak that way. And so this the bullying is part of a systemic mm-hmm. structure and how people are parenting. Because when parents are cruel to their children, mm. their children learn to be cruel and they pass along those cruel actions at school to other children. These are learned behaviors. And that too is a system. And you know, I th- and a system that's born out of like not to be cliche, but hurt people hurt people. A thousand percent. I think that's a, such an important part of the conversation that I feel like we don't talk about enough is that there is this idea that like on the surface, patriarchy obviously benefits men. White supremacy benefits white people. Yes, I would say it benefits them from like the shallow ego driven needs and desires like I can get richer, I can get more powerful, I can, you know. But I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough is like I don't believe it's benefiting them. It's not benefiting their souls. It's actually deeply, deeply damaging. Like that narrative for one human to carry that I am more valuable, that I am better than you at its core, I think is so insidious and so toxic and so hurtful to a human soul to believe that, that it's actually, it's, it's not benefiting anybody in the long run. Like obviously the, the, the folks who are being taken advantage of and oppressed are very clearly hurt by that. But I think to hold that within you is actually really deeply damaging to the human soul. And I wish we could talk about that more because then I feel like we could be more united in our fight against it. Because I feel like the way that we frame the conversation of like, well, this system benefits this people group and it and it disadvantages this people group, it it feels like it kind of pits us together. Whereas like, you know, specifically let's talk about gender for for an example, that it's like, I don't like, yes, men are doing really well when it comes to how much power they're occupying in the world. The amount of the world's wealth, power, fortune, 100 CEO slots, like whatever, whatever it is. There's like these metrics that it's like, yeah, clearly this system is working for the white men. Also, rates of depression, anxiety, alcoholism, suicide, gun violence. Like there's all of these things that are like, I'm like, the men are not okay. Like, this is not, like, they're not fine, you know? Like, and I kind of believe that the patriarchy is a huge reason why men are not fine, you know? But I feel like if we don't talk about that, like, I feel like all of a sudden that puts us into this, like, united way of, like, can we all agree that this way of thinking and believing is super damaging to women and it's actually really damaging to men? And so if we can be united on that, and think about a world and a future that actually frees us both up to be more of who we were created to be, um, then we can be in it together. But I think that the language we use so often feels like very territorial and and zero sum. And that's where I feel like people then get really territorial and defensive. And it it becomes more about I, I feel threatened and I need to protect myself and what I do still have versus like acknowledging yeah, this actually really isn't working well for me. Like a lot of men are killing themselves (laughs) and is because they're not okay. And might it be because of this ideology that we've, we've ascribed to collectively? Yeah. You know how I, I frame it 
for myself is that for me, for, first and foremost, as someone who does diversity, equity, inclusion work for a living and is very much a fierce advocate and activist for interrupting these systems, I will always put the onus on the group that has supremacy, power, privilege. I will always put the onus first and foremost on the group that has heightened social power mm -hmm. because of their cultural identities and because of all the benefits that they reap by simply by virtue of having uh, those identities. And so in particular, I will always put the onus on men to do the work of interrupting gender inequities. I will always put the onus on white people to interrupt racism and white supremacy. I will always put the onus on people who are cisgender and hetero to interrupt forms of oppression that are directed towards people from the LGBTQ plus communities. And I would say, as you have shared, that these systems of inequities also hurt the groups that have heightened power and supremacy. And one of the primary ways in which this happens is that it helps to mask the pain mm -hmm. that people are holding. Mm -hmm. And again, it's their responsibility to do the work, mm -hmm. to identify the pain, to work through the pain. But the thing, problem is that when people have a heightened sense of social power and, and superiority, it's, there's less incentivization to do the work around yeah. I'm hurting. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. And it also hurts people who have heightened privilege, power, supremacy in society to be in that place because frankly, if you always are starting five sec the race five seconds ahead, you have you have you have an extra five seconds to start and you're you you're already out front. You may not recognize that actually mm -hmm. some of your skills aren't as developed as others. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that you're getting ahead, not because you actually have ability and competence. You're getting ahead just because you got a five seconds head, headway. You started sooner. Mm -hmm. And when increasingly a fast runner who started five seconds after you, but is a fast runner, is now starting to clip at your heels and overtakes you, it can be really shattering to your mm -hmm. sense of superiority because, wow, mm -hmm. look at that. You're actually not excellent and you're not superior. And I think mm -hmm. what we're seeing in our workplaces and society right now is exactly this. We have more diversity in our workplaces than ever before. There are more women, more people of color and indigenous peoples. There are more LGBTQ plus professionals. There's more age diversity. There's more people with lived experiences with mental health and physical health challenges. And there is excellence being uncovered and unlocked and revealed from communities that historically have not been able to showcase their excellence. And for the people who, the homogeneous groups that are now in positions of power, who are not as excellent, but got there because of having a head start, it must be very frightening and scary. And frankly, my hope is that as we increasingly shift the way in which we're working and using knowledge and 
opening the doors to access as it relates to inventing and creating and decision-making and being entrepreneurs and building, that access to decision-making and leadership and being in positions of powers, power will shift to the people mm -hmm. who are actually excellent, but who have historically been held back because of these systems. And, and I think we're starting to see it increasingly. And I think it is deeply uncomfortable for those who hold positions of power and privilege because getting on the, getting ahead on the basis of mediocrity is a house of cards in today's mm -hmm. day and age increasingly. And so we're in a really interesting place. It's a really interesting, difficult place. And, and then the last thing I'll say is in my world or the world I wish we could build and continue to cultivate, we're all doing our self-work to heal from the hurt. Whether that hurt was racist bullying, whether that hurt was that your parents were really mean to you, whether it was that you grew up in poverty and it just was a struggle or you were the youngest in the family and you just felt neglected, like whatever the, your story is, that each of us owns our hurt and works to heal our hurt because the world is hurting and mm -hmm. we, need, we need more love all around. We need more goodness. And I'm also, the last thing I'll say, like really, this is the last thing. <laughs> um, I'm inspired by a lot of the beautiful things that are happening in this world. I'm inspired and I'm filled with hope. I'm not mm. just about, holy fuck, like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Although I do mm, think that a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I'm also simultaneously like, wow, this is really awesome. I'm, I'm excited mm. by a lot of what I'm mm -hmm. seeing. And I feel like we're in this moment of transition. And so I'm hoping for the best, not the worst. I love that. I love that. I think that it can be both and. Both we can acknowledge how far we have to go and the deep brokenness and hold on to hope for the future. And I, I frankly agree with you. I think at the end of the day, we don't really know. So I might as well choose the vision that's a little bit more hopeful yeah. and compelling. And it's going to help yeah. energize me to wake up. Yeah, like, like I get out of bed. Like, like I want to get out of bed. Like, I, yeah, right. Totally. Like, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you share with us a moment, a time, or a season in your journey where upon reflection or maybe even when you were in it, it was just hard, whether it was a rejection, a mistake, a wrong turn that you've made in the work that you're doing. Um, will you just share with us, a, 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 not a highlight, but maybe a low light from your journey? Oh, God, I've had so many. I don't even like know where to start. Where do I, where do I start where, with, uh, as an entrepreneur? When did I have t a tough times in building my business? Or for that matter, I've made multiple career shifts. Like I mentioned earlier, I went from being uh, well, I was a lawyer and then I hated the practice of law and then I became an HR leader and then I hated that too because I was working in the towers and I was like, this is like, I'm reinforcing systems of conformity and this is not what I want to do. And then I became an entrepreneur and then like at every turn, I'm like, pivot, 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 pivot. Like, it's just like, I just, sometimes I'm like, there is no peace. So there are multiple, but like, I'll share one that that comes to mind because I wrote about it and we've got this. But for me, it was like really the moment where I was like, I've got to change the way I'm living my life. Mm. And so essentially, so I practiced law for a few years and I realized early on, like the practice of law was not for me, but I didn't want to leave the legal profession. And so I transitioned to essentially became becoming an HR leader at a large international firm uh, based in Toronto. And I did that for seven years. And so I spent 10 years in the legal profession working in the corporate towers, the big ones which I stare at all day long, ironically, but anyhow. <laughs> uh, so I 
I'm working in the towers in this HR job. And at first it was great. I was like, I'm loving life. I'm still in the legal mm. profession. I'm, I'm hiring lawyers and I'm cultivating talent and I'm helping people to get ahead. And this is so brilliant. But then what started happening is I started to realize, wow, there's all these systems and patterns around who's getting ahead and who's not, even though they should be getting ahead. But more importantly, I feel all this pressure to change and mask who I am and toe the company line. And mm. I disagree with a lot of the decisions that are being made. I just didn't feel, I just started to feel more and more spiritually vacant. And then, mm. and then in tandem, I was working really long hours. Like you can picture like a hardcore law firm, legal profession, a business world. And I'm now in my 30s and I'm struggling to find a mate. Like uh, hmm. I was like, I need to find a husband and have children because I'm now as a woman in my 30s and um, TikTok, TikTok. And in Indian, it's like, I mean, if this is em emphasized in Canadian and American culture, like it's tenfold in, in Indian culture. And I'm like, I was hanging out with people. I didn't like, like I liked them, but I just, I, I just couldn't really be me. And so there's all this happening, all this is happening at once. And one day after work, my sister and I go to a concert. It's the Stevie Wonder concert. And we're sitting in the Stevie Wonder concert and Stevie is doing his Stevie thing. And he is singing joy and he is singing love and he is singing community and he is just singing. But he's also talking a lot mm. and he, and it felt like kind of like being in group therapy because I was like, mm. there's so many good messages, Stevie. And he started, he was talking a lot about life's happiness and purpose and meaning. Mm. And as he's talking, I'm like, you're talking to me. You know that I'm profoundly miserable and unhappy in my life. Mm. You're talking to me. And, and my sister must have intuitively, like her, her soul must have felt it because mm. she turns to me and says to me, something to the effect of, are you happy in your life? And right then and there, in the middle of the Stevie Wonder concert, did I not break down and have the most ugly mm. cry mm. around how no, I wasn't happy. And you know, as I share this with you, I'm having a bit of an aha, actually, it's fascinating. fascinating. I even wrote about this. I wrote about this story in the, my book, but I'm now I'm remembering, like music is very healing. Mm. Sound vibration helps our nervous system to feel, uh, can help to really settle our nervous systems. And in that moment, I must have been like in, in like robot mode, going from work to work to thing to thing. And so in that moment, my nervous system must have had a, a feel moment of feeling settled where I could even allow the emotion mm -hmm. to come up. I had ugly cry and it was in that concert and afterwards that I said, I gotta change the way I'm living. Like I'm too young to go down like wow. this. And ultimately, that is what cracked open for me mm -hmm. a few other life decisions, including taking a sabbatical from my job to go to India to study yoga, where I spent two months doing my yoga teacher training and then coming back to Canada. I did an executive MBA because I was a good Indian daughter. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to shift my life, I better get more education because let's go back to the PPA armor. I did an MBA. And then I left my job in the corporate towers. And that's when I started my business around how do I help to create a world where everyone feels heightened belonging based on who they are. And here we are 13 years later. Oh, I love that. I love all of those things that were kind of working in tandem in that moment, right? Like the role of art in that, that sometimes, you know, when someone comes in and just says, hey, 
uh, I know you and I know your problem and you need to leave your job. It's just like so aggressive. And you're like, do you really know me? And what's your ulterior motive? But I feel like that's the power of art is that it speaks so much truth. But ultimately, it relies on the receiver of the art to say, like, am I going to allow? Will I open my heart up to maybe that this is for me, even though Stevie wasn't like, this is for you, you know, like you're the one that I'm what, that I'm saying. So there's like a lack of defense. I think your um, your note just about music and like literally that biologically there is this sense of like your defense is going down. It creates a sense of belonging. Your endorphins are going and then to have your sister being there, like someone who cared enough about you, I think so often the the folks that I interview on the show and just like know in life. The percentage of these moments that involve another person who took a social risk, because there's always a risk in trying to go deeper with people, right? Like when you turn to somebody and you go, are you really happy? You risk them getting defensive. You risk them being offended. You risk hurting their feelings. Whatever it is, it takes a lot of courage. And I think it's a profound act of love because we don't do that if we don't really care about somebody. If your happiness doesn't actually deeply matter to me and feel really important. I don't take the social risk to say, I'm going to ask the hard question. And so the fact that like in that moment, you had somebody that you were in community with that knew you, that knew the essence of who you were, that that knew what it looked like and felt like to be around you when you truly were alive and free, who took the risk to say, are you okay? And it seems like you're not okay. Um, it's just so powerful. There's just like a lot of things that were happening for you in that moment that came together, but then also I think very powerful that you were in a place where you were willing to not only receive it, but then to have what I heard in the way that you told that story, that there was agency, that you were like, I, this is my life. Like I do, I do get to make decisions. And just because I decided 10 years ago to be a lawyer and to go on this track, that doesn't, that didn't put me on a track that I have to go beyond until I die. Like I actually have the ability to change the course um, and to do something different, which is really, really brave and courageous as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think well, we're surrounded by angels and, and it's, it's like we're all interconnected in our desire to love and create a better world for all and allow our angels to lift us. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing just this story and this perspective and exchanging ideas. It was a delight to get to know you. And I know our community has felt the same way. So thanks for being here today. Oh, bless. Thank you so much, Liz, for having me on. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. You know that for updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit LizBohannon.co or follow me on Instagram. I'm at LizBohannon. And I love, love, love to hear from my pleasure. Pluckies. So until next time, stay plucky.